0: This is episode number 26 with Elizabeth Dennehy.
1: Coming up. We always had crappy cars, cars that blew black smoke from the engine into the car, cars that had no floors. It's hard to do something when you don't know if you're going to succeed at it. That's scary. It's really scary. I can't think of another field where you can actually be the best at what you do And nobody knows or cares it's heartbreaking it's a heartbreaking profession so after the 75th time of you biting into a meatball and if you can make that seem like it's the first time that's gold you know it's really really hard to do i can't say he would have ever won father of the year but i do think watching your father pursue what he loves doing is a wonderful role model
0: If you're looking for what it takes to be an actor long-term over the course of your life, then you've come to the right place, and you're going to really enjoy today's episode. Today's guest came from very humble beginnings, saw her dad's struggle with his own career, decided her family was a priority, worked even more when she was pregnant, and has found ways to help other actors. Hey there, this is Nathan Agin, and welcome to The Working Actor's Journey, connecting you with lifelong professionals. Welcome back for season five. I'm really thrilled to bring you five more great interviews this season, and today we're kicking it off with actress Elizabeth Dennehy. For those who are new here, this podcast is designed to show you how the work is done, what the realities of the working actor life are like, and to share all the different ways actors have come to this career. There is no one path and no single answer. We want to learn from all of those further down the road, to shorten the learning curve and to discover what helps and what doesn't when it comes to having a lifelong career as an actor. Now, honestly, I had no idea what was going to happen after season three two years ago, and I mean before the pandemic happened. I just wasn't sure what was next, but pretty quickly I pulled some things together, and before I knew it, we had some great workshops going, which really became a super collaborative project and a lot of fun to do. I want to say that all of the guests this season were largely unknown to me, some I didn't even know of at all two years ago. And that's been one of the great joys of the pandemic, having all this time and with the workshops, is that I've been able to meet and get to know many more actors and professionals, and I'm thrilled I can bring them onto the podcast. So our guest today, Elizabeth Dennehy, has been working for 30-plus years with 50-plus film and TV credits and hundreds of commercials. She has acted at major regional theaters across the country and is an original creator and cast member of Tony and Tina's Wedding. She is a graduate of Hofstra University, the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, and studied at Shakespeare's Globe in London. And yes, she's also the daughter of actor Brian Dennehy, who shuffled off his mortal coil in 2020 after a long and celebrated career. Among many other things, we talk about pursuing the dream, seeing it with her father, and then doing it herself. Plus, we get another mini Shakespeare class where Elizabeth dives into a piece from Macbeth. She's been an audition coach for years and has also helped many students with their college auditions, so you'll definitely want to check this out. And speaking of Shakespeare, we have an upcoming workshop in April 2022 with Rando Duck Kim and Annie Okio Grosso from episode 25. They are workshopping a couple scenes from King Lear, and you can either be in the scene with Randy as Lear, a part he played to acclaim at American Players Theater, or be part of the virtual audience. They have been working professionally for 50-plus years and are sharing the discoveries and ideas they have about Shakespeare's first folio. For a sneak peek, check out our text work episode with them on Hamlet, which has been one of our most popular episodes ever. It's pretty amazing what they can reveal. This approach can help you with lots of material besides Shakespeare. Randall and Annie will teach you how to find answers to the many questions that great actors need to ask. Head to WorkingActorsJourney.com to find out more and sign up. Space is limited. Just a couple other bits of business I want to share quickly. There's also a new free guide to download. It's called Keys the Pros Use to Unlock Any Script. This shares the actual questions, approach, and process the professionals use when working on any material—plays, scripts, audiobooks, and more—from those who've done the work. And as a bonus, you'll also receive the full Working Actors Journey Kit, including all the other guides and more. There's wisdom from Armin Shimmerman, Elizabeth Dennehy, Tony Amendola, director Brendan Fox, dramaturg Gideon Rappaport, and more. Get your copy of the guide now at workingactorsjourney.com slash sign up, and to make it easy, there's also a link in the episode description. Now, if you're really enjoying this podcast and want more, you can become a patron. Starting at just $2 per month, get exclusive access to behind-the-scenes and additional content, and be part of taking this show to the next level. And for those who join at the CoStar level or higher, just $5 or more per month, you also receive a 10% discount on our workshops and programs, including that April Shakespeare workshop with Randall and Annie. Okay, the business stuff is all set. Now, I had a great time with Elizabeth, and it's a fantastic chat. There's lots of honesty, lots of realness looking at the biz, especially from one who saw someone with so much success— and a great practical attitude about it all. Once again, it really shows there are many ways into and through this business. Whether your parent is a major film star or not, you still find your own way. So whatever your situation is, you've got to want it and work at it. And her dad? He was proof that he really had to work at it for a long time before it paid off. And as you'll hear, he was very lucky. So here we go with episode number 26... Please enjoy my chat with Elizabeth Dennehy. I wanted to ask how our class is going.
1: Yeah, it's great because I, I love my subject matter. I do teach Shakespeare to 10th graders. Mm -hmm. I think everybody is adjusting to life after, after remote learning. Sure. We were teaching on Zoom for 18 months and not going into school. And now we are teaching and learning. We're wearing masks, which is. So difficult when you're a theater teacher and sure. especially a Shakespeare teacher where articulation and diction and enunciation and projection are everything. So very, very challenging. I've got a great group of kids, super talented, very talented, where, you know, we're doing well. The last time these kids were in person in a normal school sense, where face-to-face, was like they were seventh graders, So it's a huge adjustment. I have 36 teenagers who auditioned to get into the Los Angeles County High School for the Arts. So they want to be there. They care about theater. I Every year you have some students who are a little dubious about if they're going to like Shakespeare, if they're going to be engaged. And they need, need some prodding and some encouragement that it's for everybody and you can do this. And some kids are blowing my mind my mind right now that the the most reticent not apathetic but just dubious dubious mm-hmm. doubtful mm-hmm. that this is for them sure. have been blowing my mind. So we just did paraphrase the speech and put it into your own words. Yep. And I I was so shocked at how much they understood what they were saying when they put it into their
0: own words. It was really cool. That's great. Well I mean I'm glad that you know you're you're you guys are able to gather together in person and, and have that experience, albeit a little stifled in some ways, or, or, or you know, the, like you said with the, with the masks. And, and I've heard that from other teachers that is that, yeah, the theater is not designed to be done with, with half masks, maybe the full masks, like the Greeks, you know, that kind of thing. You could, <laughs> you could do a more representative performance, but yeah, the half masks I think are, are tough and, and kids, I'm not going to say like teenagers, like, you know, today's teenagers but i think all teenagers including myself when i was that age you you have trouble sometimes enunciating as it is and so to add a layer of cloth on top of your mouth is yeah seems to be uh, at cross purposes with theater but
1: i'm trying to use it to my advantage because you, know, you should be articulating as 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 strenuously as possible so you right. have to actually double that enunciation and articulation and using all of your muscles in order to project so when they do take off their masks, it will be so much easier. They sure. they oh, will yeah. be so pri- they'll be so primed and in such good shape for that.
0: No, they, well that that yeah, it reminds me of like the, those tongue tw- not t- not tongue twist, but like tongue exercises people do, like you know putting the cork in their mouth to to you know go through their lines, so that when they take the cork out, it's so much easier to you know have that enunciation and, and exactly. articulation. Yeah. yeah, well that's great. It's
1: like it's like in singing, you want to if you have to hit a high note hit notes higher than that. And then mm. the high note becomes right. within in your grasp. Yeah. yeah Shoot yeah. for the moon. Shoot for the moon and you land in the stars. I <laughs> always say.
0: Right now. Now you obviously got involved with theater and acting. It seemed like at an extremely young age. Where and where were you? Where were you living? Where were you growing up as a kid?
1: So we grew up in Long Island, New York. Mm -hmm. So when I am in Long Island, this is the way I talk.
0: Okay, you Um, you can drop
1: it. Embedded Long Island accent, yeah. I'm from Long Island. My father was from Connecticut, and his father moved to Long Island. My father went to Chaminade High School on, on Long Island. I went to Hofstra University. And yes, my father and his brother always were enthralled with theater and acting, When we were very, very young, we watched On the Waterfront every single time it aired. My father and his Mm. brother would act out whole scenes from that movie. They knew it by heart. So it's just kind of like a family business that you grow up in. If you grew up in a family of dry cleaners or restaurant owners, it's the world you know. And that was normal for us, that my father and his brother would be putting on... And of a thousand days at the local community theater or dinner theater. They were always doing theater. And we were enlisted as the no neck monsters in Cat on a Tin Roof. We were fairies in the Tempest. Whenever they needed children, we were the snow children mm-hmm. in Carousel. Anytime they needed kids, we were enlisted. And that was a normal life for us. That was completely normal to be in costumes and opening night and opening night parties and we're talking small scale local sure. community theater. My father co- uh, created a company called Amityville Community Theater or ACT.
0: Oh, okay, yeah.
1: And they put on shows at the Amityville High School, which is where we lived at the time, and that was normal. That was I would, would I knew Come Back Little Sheba. My father directed Funny Girl. I made him audition me for Fanny Bryce because <laughs> I was obsessed with the show. My sisters and I would act out all of the musical theater albums. We would make our families watch us act out all the songs. Jesus Christ Superstar, we knew by heart. So that was normal life for us. And,
0: and so was that normal for like your dad growing up or like what, what did his parents do? Like where, where did the spark get set for him? Cause clearly, obviously, you know, there's, there's a lot of influences for you as a young kid, but you know, because he was also in the the military as a young man. So where yes. where did this where, come into his life? Yeah,
1: we, he went to like I mentioned, Charlton Art all Boys School, mm-hmm. and he credits a guy who was the football coach and the drama. Oh, okay, wow. The drama guy. So his, his name is Chris Sweeney, and he enlisted my dad. He needed guys for the drama department, mm-hmm. and. My dad, as a teenager, played Macbeth. Oh, wow. I have I have a picture of him on stage playing Macbeth, and he was he was jobbed in. The, you know, the the mm-hmm. drama teacher needed more guys. Well, it was an old boys' school, so they he just needed more actors, sure. and he got enlisted. And they did um, the Pyramid and scene from Midsummer, and uh-huh, they you uh-huh. know there was you we all do those Shakespeare competitions, and they right. won. And my father up until the very end, would talk rapturously about Chris uh, Sweeney and Mm. what he learned from him and how he ignited the flame. And his younger brother, Ed, went to Hofstra University. That's how I knew about the drama department. And we had an award-winning Shakespeare production with a uh, replica of the Globe stage that was built every year. And so Hofstra was very on the map in Mm -hmm. terms of Shakespeare and studying Shakespeare. So when I went there... I played Bianca and Taming of the Shrew and I, but I can remember in the fourth grade, I went to an, a Catholic school up until eighth grade and then an old girl Catholic school, St. Joseph's from eighth grade on. But mm-hmm. I went to St. Martin of Tours school in Amityville and I can remember. In the fourth grade, we did a dumbed down version of Midsummer and I got cast as Helena and the boy I was desperately in love with, Thomas Hogan, got cast as Demetrius. And I remember, I remember dancing the whole way home from the bus stop to my house. I mean, I, when I, cause I think about this all the time, where was the flame lit? Where, where Mm -hmm, did all this get ignited? And I I guess we are hardwired, but it is the world in which I lived comfortably. And my dad and my uncle just cared more about acting in theater and good actors than anything else. Even though they did job jobs, that's mm-hmm. what that where they found their solace and their respite was doing these shows on the weekends and watching me, me, watching my father do Brick in Cat on Hotchin and Roof and then wow. later Big Daddy. Yeah. I mean, that was just so normal for me. End of a thousand days, like I mentioned before, right. playing playing King Henry the Eighth, really powerful, intense stuff for community theaters to to put on, and sure. he he really made a name for himself. And there was the Watermelon Dinner Theater in Sayville, Long Island, and he did all the musicals there. A funny thing happened on the way to the forum, Fiddler on the Roof. My father was an amazing Tevya for a big Irish guy. <laughs> he was a great Tevya. And Sky Masterson and Guys and Dolls, he did name it. He did it.
0: Wow! Directed,
1: and, directed, and starred in. So.
0: And there are a lot of people that you know just enjoy and love, you know, doing community theater, and, and and that's that's their outlet, and that's what they're excited about. And and it seemed like you know your dad had other ambitions or or wanted to pursue it as a, as a career or wanted to make it you know more of his focus. What and and, and of course a lot of us you know, on the outside can look at, you know, your dad's career trajectory, you know, very differently than you can being there. So like, as a, as a kid, what was your perspective of what your dad was going through to try to, you know, figure this out? And, and, and it sounded like, you know, you, you had lived with your grandparents at a certain time and like, You know, were they fully behind this? Were they not at all behind, you
1: know? (laughs) Not at all. Not at all. After my father died, American Theater Magazine asked me to write something. And I Mm. started with the story. We were living with my grandparents because we couldn't afford to keep our own house in West Uh Gilgo Beach. And we moved in with my grandparents, which for an eighth grader is sort of mortifying. And I remember, I'm trying to remember how he went from Long Island Community Theater And suddenly started doing regional theater because I'm a a little bit fuzzy about what happened first. But suddenly my dad was doing The Little Barber in Mano La Mancha at the Lampertville, New Jersey. It was a musical theater Mm -hmm. in a tent. Okay. And near Bucks County. And I would go with him every weekend and we would drive into the city and pick up two flamenco dancers who played the horse, who played Don Quixote's horse. They were gorgeous. I didn't mind that at all. And drive to New Jersey. And I remember very clearly at the dining table saying to my dad, we're going to New Jersey this weekend and him kicking me under the table (laughs) because he was not supposed to be doing theater. It was almost like he was a heroin addict. He could live with my grandparents and they would support us as long as he promised to swear off doing theater on the side and make an honest living. And- He was pretending that he wasn't doing this, but he actually was. He was, at the time, working as a stockbroker during the day in the city with Martha Stewart, funnily enough, at a company called Moness Williams and Seidel. And he was a security guard at a motel at night, round the clock. My mother was working as a waitress, you know, trying to keep our house that we lived in. Wow. And he was doing theater. He was mainlining theater on the weekends and, you know, in secret. So- It's really incredible because he had to do it. It was a need. Right. It was an important, vital priority in his life that he needed it like a drug. But it's pretty, it's pretty incredible when I think about it. Because I thought about this a lot after he died. I had to go back to those beginning times, and somehow. He got, was doing these regional theaters, amazing, amazing productions, really brilliant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Got involved in what they used to have is showcases, actual showcases where you, where you, the impossible ragtime theater would do lunchtime theater in pubs. He did the sea plays, the O'Neill sea plays. He did Julius Caesar and Ivanov with Jonathan Frakes.
0: Oh, well, yeah, from Star Trek. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yes, yeah, so you would do these showcases in New York, daytime theater, lunchtime theater, the Impossible Ragtime Theater, and, a, a, and his agent, that's how he got an agent. Okay. Then I think what, what changed everything was he got cast as an understudy in streamers by Mike Nichols at Lincoln Center. Sure, okay. And I think he may have actually ended up replacing somebody who left, and then Mike Nichols suggested him to somebody for Semi-Tough, the Burt Reynolds, oh, yeah, Chris Christopherson yeah. movie. And that was it. That was, that was when he took off. Well, And,
0: and, and so I know like, and we jumped a lot of your years there, but that's okay. Yeah. I mean, we can go back and, and fill in a little bit of the gaps. I mean, how was the, I guess, struggle of him working at this career? How was that affecting you? Like, you, you know, like, did you Were you aware of it? Was it, I mean, you know, of course we can all glamorize certain professions and like, oh, I'm sure it was just amazing, you know, for Brian Dennehy to be an actor. And, you know, and I'm sure his family always had great times, you know, but.
1: No, the downside (laughs) was that we had terrible cars. We always had crappy cars, cars that blew black smoke from the engine into the car, cars that had no floors. We always had terrible cars. I can remember our heat going off in the middle of the night because bills weren't paid. I can remember because we, where we lived was West Gilgo Beach, which is the hinterlands. It's like five miles east of Jones Beach. And you know, like we lived like pioneers. (laughs) And I remember having no phone for a while. And here's the thing. The downside was that the upside was my parents very, very young. My mother was 19 when she had me. They knew that education was the most important thing. So they scrimped and saved and sacrificed to give us uh, the best education their money could buy. So they put us in this all-girl Catholic school, St. Joseph's, the Academy of St. Joseph's in Brentwood. Amazing education. My sisters and I had a fantastic education. They knew that that was really important. Even while all this craziness was going on, it was sort of like, I guess – the way families live if they have a circus performer, circus families. The romantic, you know, out of the trunk, all of that. Right. It was kind of fun, but it was also kind of harrowing because you never knew if your car was going to break down. Our cars broke down all the time. And because my father was away traveling a lot, my mother bore the brunt of it. Thank God it all paid off. But I, I, I do remember being aware... Of the fact that my father was following his dreams, and that was an admirable thing, because my friends' fathers, who just worked nine-to-five jobs, every once in a while, a dad would say to me, like on a sleepover or at somebody's house, how did your father do it? How did your father pursue his dreams no matter what? And what they were saying to me, and what I heard, was how was he so brave? How did he not get sucked into the grind and the nose to the grindstone, they they admired that. And every time a dad or a family member of my friends would say something to me, that would remind me that what he was doing was kind of cool, mm-hmm. even though at the time we had no idea if it was going to pay off, mm-hmm. it was going to succeed.
0: Right. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm assuming when you mentioned sleepovers, like these are these are dads talking about your dad before he's really, quote-unquote, made it. You know, it's like yeah. he's, he's just – you know he's he's a work a day actor like he's just trying to find jobs and you know cobbling it together as he can so it's not even you know you know millions of dollars coming in for you know it's none of that it's just that he's pursuing something that he that he loves you know you mentioned your your grand your his parents weren't totally thrilled with it but it sounded like you know i mean did, was your mom just fully behind his career or where did she kind of fall in that cuz like you said she had to there there was three of you there were three kids
1: Three kids. I was the oldest. So she was 19 when she had me in Camp Lejeune. He was a Marine. Mm -hmm. And I think she just really loved him. And remember, they were so young. They were so young, that you would just go okay, whatever. This is what we're doing, you know. Like if I was the age, you know, I got married at thirty-three, yeah. And if my and my husband was an actor, but we both were working, like we right, were working right. when we met each other. It's not like you're in your forties and somebody's still trying to get something going. Like you know, he was really rising. He was mm-hmm. he was becoming more and more well known for his work. So it was a gamble. And thank God it paid off pretty early on when he, when semi tough came out. Yep. I was 16. So I remember going to see it in the movie theater. I think we went on Thanksgiving day and see and thinking, wow, he's acting with Burt, Bert, yeah, Bert Reynolds. Yeah. And this is his first film role and he's the movie kind of stops in his scenes and. Mm. After that, he just never stopped working. So I think she was just sort of uh, in love with him and supporting him and whatever. And it was fun. She stage managed some of the early shows, mm-hmm. made mm-hmm. costumes. But I remember she sewed his suitless costume for funny thing happened to the way of the Four. You were young enough and young enough to be stupid enough to find it fun and not terrifying. Right. I guess and, and, is and the key.
0: And, and of course, like, you know, nowadays kids. Or young people are just introduced to so many options and so many things that, y- you know, just 50 years ago, you weren't aware of all the things you could do and all the possibilities or working online was not even a thing that wasn't even a concept. So it's like, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that, that all these people settled, but I think they just, their worldview was probably just a lot narrower because of the reality because of options. Um,
1: Meanwhile, my sleepovers were with at homes with pools and the men who were saying this to me were often like worked for the phone company were, were CEOs and had made a lot of money. It was clear why they took, chose the path they chose. But I think a little part of anybody really goes, what if I wonder what was the thing I dreamed of being when I was a little boy? And when did that, Go away. And when did it become insurance salesman? Or maybe the job was something that you wanted to do. I, you know, my brother in law was an engineering major in school. Worked for a company that sold ball bearings. Decided he hated it and went back to law school. So, and and is now a lawyer. I mean, there's. It's never too late to change. But I think that they were. It was clear why you chose something that you knew you were going to. It's hard to do something when you don't know if you're going to succeed at it. That's scary. It's really scary.
0: Yeah, yeah. My fiance, my partner, she's a, she's a physician, and and we have a, we've had a lot of conversations of, of just like that's a very linear path. You do this thing, and then you do this thing, and as long as you show up day after day, you're going to get to you know be a, a real live physician. You're gonna you're gonna do that thing. You're gonna be at the pinnacle. You're gonna be at the top, and. And and a creative pursuit is just so, so different. And, and there's no guarantee that you're going to arrive at the top. Um, I know
1: so many wonderful, wonderful actors who have never worked professionally, never even gotten an agent. Yeah. I can't think of another field where you can actually be the best at what you do and nobody knows or cares. Right. It's right. heartbreaking. It's a heartbreaking profession.
0: And, and I mean, it you know, it it just brings up this this concept of success. Well, what does success mean? You know, because if if we're all basing it on, well, how many credits do you have or how much money do you have, or you know or, or how much you getting for different roles and things like that, then then yes, I mean, it's very easy to fall short. and and I you know, I'm guilty of this same stuff too. And I do want to kind of get into that more, but I, I before I lose the track, the the thread of it, as a, as a kid, were you interested in anything else like through school? Was there, were there other pursuits or things you saw yourself doing or you thought of doing or were you really interested in, or it was just, you know, I mean, it, it's kind of funny, like even with the, the challenges and, and I'm sure some of the stress of living with your grandparents, like what that was like, even with all that, you were like, yeah, I want to do this too. I mean, was it, was it very clear like that for you?
1: I never wanted to do anything else, but I remember my father would always say, if you can do something else, do it. That's a, a common thing to right, hear. Of he also was saying, would say to me, it's really, really hard. It's really, really hard. So make sure it's what you absolutely want to do. And I, when I heard him say that, I thought he means the work is hard. Well, I love the work. It doesn't feel like work <laughs> yeah, to yeah, me. Yeah, of course. I never knew that he was talking about collecting unemployment, going on hundreds of auditions, being told no over and over again. And, and it was, it was, I was a long time into it before I realized that's what he meant. I remember auditioning. I think I auditioned 14 times for the movie JFK for Oliver Stone. Yeah. And <laughs> in New York, I auditioned for him. I don't think. It was before you could put yourself on tape, so sure. we didn't do that. It was sure. in person fourteen yeah. times Jeez. to be one of Kevin Costner's legal team, the legal team. Yep. And yep. my uncle, my father's other brother, Uncle Mike, was an FBI agent. I read the Christopher report. I talked to him about exactly what went on. This yeah. is all the preparation I did, yeah, sure, because he was an FBI agent during the time of the assassination. So all wow. the prep work that I went in, so that when I went in and met Oliver Stone, it really knew what I was talking about.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And
1: I remember saying to myself, if I don't get this, I quit. I quit the business. Well, you know who he cast instead of me? Who is that? Lori Metcalf. Uh huh. Okay, only okay. one of the greatest actors yeah, sure. to draw breath. So I thought, okay, well I can keep going a little bit longer if I'm neck and neck with Laurie Metcalf. Right, I right. think <laughs> I think I can. So my husband and I always laugh. It's like we've had enough success to keep going, but not enough to keep going. You know, but yeah, no, I've always loved it. I I do think now a missed calling for me. I would have been an amazing casting director. I remember. Yeah. Every face and every name that goes with that face of everything I've ever seen, I'll be watching a movie. I'm like, oh, I know that person. I can totally trace their career. It's a it's a party trick. It's just a superpower, and it's crazy. It's a crazy
0: yeah, – I'm often called a savant because they're like, how do you remember that this guy was in this movie 30 years? And it's like, well, how do you not remember? It's like it was such a I memorable know. scene.
1: Yeah, it's, it's like spelling. I can't not spell something correctly. I just, and it, I, and people will send me stuff and I'm like, well, do you want me to tell you about the 10 typos? I mean, it's really annoying. <laughs> so that's a superpower of like seeing, see, I cannot spell something incorrectly. It's pretty annoying. But, but yeah, cast, casting director, I would have been good at, but I'm too old to start at the bottom getting coffee for people. So.
0: Wait, now you just have, you, you have to put yourself out there as like, I'm starting with this level of project. This is what I'm doing. And what uh, I do
1: (laughs) is at, at LOXA, at the school where I teach the cinematic arts department, they know to call me if they need help finding an actor.
0: Oh, cool. I I
1: really, I enjoy doing that. I'll I'll be like, well, have you thought about? going this way. And I really love doing that. It's really fun.
0: That's cool. Well, yeah, I mean, it it is, yeah, it is, it is exciting. Mm -hmm. And in the little bit I've done, you know, through the workshops, whatever, you know, quote unquote, casting people, it is fun to, to put people in maybe different places or, or things that they haven't done before. And, 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 you get to see other people see something, or or you get to see them, you know, the actor themselves discover something through tr- playing a different character. It, it 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 is you know very rewarding when that when that lines up well. Yeah, um,
1: it's like matchmaking. It's really fun. Yeah, exactly.
0: You mentioned going to Hofstra, and so what was the you know how how did you end up at that college? I mean, had you applied to a number of other ones?
1: Oh. Did you know what you
0: wanted to do going into it?
1: You know, I think back on that experience and I was asleep at the wheel. I remember my mother, <laughs> my mother drove that train. I left high school, you know, it's I was artistic, but I wasn't that ambitious. My mother went to Hofstra, my like, Elka went to Hofstra because mm-hmm. they had a really good theater program. It sort of made sense for a lot of reasons, mm-hmm. but I actually, to my mother's credit, she, we could have, I could have commuted, but she really wanted me to have the living at college sure, halfway yeah. house to adulthood. So I was in the dorms, but it was nice also having my family nearby. And then for many, many reasons after Hofstra, I didn't feel quite ready to go out into the wild world. And it may have been because I was at an all-girl Catholic high school. So it was pretty going from a, from a pretty shelt fairy tale kind of like. Hogwarts-type all-female experience. Uh That was uh a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful school with an amazing education. And then to a public, large, huge university. I didn't feel quite ready. Uh So I was very lucky and got accepted into Landa, the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts, for the one-year program. I was a D there and got to get the first time in Europe, live in London for a year. I made... I made lifelong friends at high school and college. Sure. And my lamb, my Lambda friends are so dear to me. It was an amazing year of, of seeing, you know, doing school, right? fight, stage combat, Shakespeare, everything, the works, and then running into the city to see a play at night as much as we could. Mm. Back then in 80. Two, mm-hmm, you could mm-hmm. see, I remember sitting on the stage at the National Theater for a production of Midsummer Night's Dream for five quid on a cushion. Paul Schofield played Oberon. Okay. He wow, was yeah. leaping and running over us. I saw Melda Staunton, Bob Hoskins and Ian Charlson do guys and dolls. Ian McKellen was in so much. I saw Derek Jacoby do on a different night, Pierre Gint, Cyrano de Bergerac, Prospero the Ted Okay. And Mark Rylance was a 19-year-old Ariel. I had no idea. That, you know, true repertory. Sure. I can't
0: imagine having all those plays in your head at one time.
1: Oh, my God. I know. (laughs) I know. So we, I, that was immersive and and Mm an immersion mm -hmm. into... Um, the life of a classical actor. And I loved going to London. And then after London, didn't quite know what to do, was living on Long Island with my mom. I was married at the time to somebody who I'd met at Lambda. He was living with me. And we started going into the city. There's this amazing director, David Kaplan, New York-based, who was a teacher, an incredible acting teacher. And so a lot of our alums Tom McGowan has a, a oh, flourishing, sure. thriving yeah, career. And I'm he was. Sure,
0: and, yeah, lots of other stuff. Exactly. Yeah, and, yeah, and so too, he, yeah.
1: he was the first one who turned everybody onto David Pavlin. We all became acolytes and disciples and mm-hmm. going into the city. And I got cast as one of the non equity ensemble in the New York Shakespeare Festival, Kevin Klein, Henry Five with Mary Elizabeth oh, yeah. Mastrantonio. Antonio. So after first job after school, I was like, okay, this is the way my life is going to be. <clears throat> You know, well, then, got and, cast and, right away.
0: And will you bring up that production, and I also noticed you did, you were in a Cyrano de Bergerac, uh, was it at Williamstown? Uh, and before that, in
1: 1980? He, it, while I was in college, my girlfriend Diane and I were became the apprentices at Williamstown in 1980. And all the apprentices went to an audition in front of Nico Saccharopoulos and they mm-hmm. cast the ensemble. Right. And I was lucky enough to get cast in Frank Langella's Cyrano. Yeah. And, Good and, you and, did your research. You did your research. Oh, yeah. So that uh, was one, one summer while I was in college. The next summer I did uh Shakespeare company.
0: Oh, I was an okay. apprentice
1: at Shakespeare company when and, Hamish, Hamish was a toddler and oh, Kristen, sure. yeah. Kristen Linklater was uh, Mariah and Twelfth Night.
0: Well, and that's, and, and, that's when you first met Jamie Newcomb? Is that when you first crossed paths with Ex- Jamie? Exactly,
1: exactly. Okay. Jamie was in it as you like it, and I believe Twelfth Night as well. Yeah, he played Fabian in Twelfth Night. Oh. So my dad was really smart. He was like, okay, if you want to be an actor, you're going to do this. And Williamstown was boot camp. Yeah, we yeah. would strike a set in one night and put up the next set in one night. Wow. We were, We were basically, you know... You were, unpaid. Yeah, yeah exactly. Un- yeah.
0: You were slaves. Yeah. You were, you, we were, you were indentured, s- you were indentured servants. Yeah.
1: We were, ter- we were totally indentured servants, but I loved it. I yeah, loved yeah, yeah. it. I couldn't get enough. And I got to watch rehearsals, Franklin Jella rehearsed. Yeah. Cyrano.
0: And, 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 were these programs both that, that you just, was it like paper applications? I mean, was it just that, that kind of process or were there, uh, y- you know, just to get involved, it was that it yeah. must
1: have been paper. You yeah. must have, I think back in those days, you would pick up your rotary phone, yep. call the theater, say, I'm interested in your indentured servant program. <laughs> they would mail you an application. You right. would fill it out and you would snail mail, mail it back. It back. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know. My dad must have at this point, he was working professionally and he must have heard it about it through the great fire sure, sure. And, and thought it was a, what should I do with my kid who's interested in? In theater, and when, where's a good place to start? And Kate Burton was there. Jeannie Hackett, may she rest in peace. Yeah. I made um, some really good friends there that are still friends to this day. Well, well, Incredible connections, and and it, and, uh, it sa-
0: and it sounds like even though you know any parent would use whatever they could to you know further, or, or most parents would use what they could to to aid their child. It sounds like your dad wasn't just like calling up Williamstown, going, "Hey, you gotta, you know, you gotta take my daughter and and you know bring her into the program." It sounds like you were you were trying to do this of your own merit, and your own your own way in some, yeah. in some regard. I,
1: how do you find out about this stuff though? Like, I can't. <laughs> trying to imagine life without the internet seriously, like, you know, I know. Cr- so difficult. Uh, and then Shakespeare and Company was um an amazing experience, also really girly, really exhausting classes all day and then I played Audrey in as you like it with and Jamie was in that
0: uh-huh. so watching I mean and then a lot of the people you mentioned were were you know very serious big names at the time, too, you know, Langella and Kate Burton and David Hyde Pierce was in that Cyrano Eric LaSalle and anthony Heald in in the Henry the 5th he did a little bit later. So, I mean, do you feel like there were, I mean, there were probably many different things. And of course you mentioned all those actors in London you saw, but did you feel like you were starting to, you know, build what you would consider now your process or were there certain things that you remember taking away from those shows or those rehearsals that you're like, you know, kind of like what we've been doing a little bit in the workshops where it's like, you get to see somebody who's doing this regularly and it's like. Even more than just watching your dad in a film or on TV, it's like now you're getting to see like oh this is this is the work that's going on behind all of this.
1: I think probably I didn't realize it at the time, but looking back, i gotta say, I say this to my kids all the time when I was a student, I hated vocal exercises, hated them, hated mm. theater games, hated it with a passion, and then I remember I had an audition for. Independent Shakespeare Company in LA, you had to do a monologue. And I remember doing working on the monologue because I wanted to put myself in my kids' shoes. And all of a sudden I realized the penny dropped. It took a long time. And sometimes it takes a long time. The penny dropped where I went, oh my gosh, I can make my voice do whatever I want it to do. That's why we did all those games, curling up and down your spine, relaxing right, your vertebrae. Right. You know, breathing from your diaphragm. That's what it took me. I didn't get it. I was very slow to learn. I would say that looking back on that time, what I saw people doing from Franklin Jalla, Tony Heald, Kevin Klein, Mary Elizabeth Antonio, amazing, amazing performers was doing things with the words, acting with the words, actively pursuing your goal Mm -hmm. with the words that it was. Nobody just stood in one place and declaimed and spoke descriptively about their feelings. Right. I never, I never saw that. If you did see that it really stood out. It was. And also with my father, my father would say to anybody who stood still long enough, you serve the playwright, you serve the story. If it's not moving the story forward, get out of your way. It's not about you. Nobody right. cares about your feelings. They paid $100 for their ticket. It's about their experience. So, very, very active, propelling the story forward and moving moving things along actively. It, I definitely would say that was drummed into my head just from what all my exposure to yeah. seeing people rehearse and, and performances that I've loved.
0: Right. I mean that there's this and this is a this is a word that comes up a lot in, in rehearsals that there's an urgency that there's 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 a need that is not being met and and what are you doing to try to get it and and that doesn't mean you're always at a breakneck pace, but you are always as as the character very conscious of what you want and and so you might try different tactics and different paces to to get it, but that makes a lot of sense and, and so, i re-
1: I say to my kids all the time, don't mistake casualness for naturalness mm. So young people think that the more flip, flip they are, the more right. n- n- nonchalant, and you know, with the hip jutting out, and hand in a pocket. Well, if you don't care, why should we care? Right. It needs to be. It should be life and death. It should right. be life and death, and there needs to be an urgency. You have to achieve this goal. I think the biggest mistake um, people make is playing their given circumstances instead of the characters' given circumstances. Mm-hmm. Nick Bottom is not trying to do a funny death scene. He right. thinks he's going to blow your mind with his tragedy. It's, right. He thinks he's go- it's going to be the most heartbreaking death scene right. in the world. If you're trying to be funny— as Nick Bottom, that's the actor's given circumstances bleeding through. Right, throat. right.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you mentioned that Brando had such an impact on your dad, and 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 you know, of the same period, Montgomery Clift or, or James Dean, and and while you could look at them and be like, "Wow, look at how relaxed they were," they were anything but relaxed. Like they they weren't. You know, I mean. James Dean was like just this smoldering fire. Like he was never, he was never casual. Like there, and and Brando, the same thing. It's like there was there was always so much thought. I was just actually watching an interview with Mark Rylance, who was from a number of years ago, and he loves Brando as Mark Antony. And he and he yeah. said, you know, just like because you you feel like he's so present with what he's saying. That's 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 what the actor. That's what actors are always trying to get to that place where it's like every time you say it. It sounds like it's the first time you've said it. It's the first time it's occurred to you, whether it's a play or a movie. So yeah, having those two amazing shows, you know, so you're involved you're involved with with Williamstown, you're involved with Shakespeare and Company, then you get the New York Shakespeare Festival, and 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 then the rest of your career is set, right? Like uh, you're, you're just you skyrocket to fame and fortune. So so what what happens after Henry Five?
1: After Henry Five, we moved into the city and I was signed with Su- the Susan Smith agency and I started going out on auditions and I became the queen of the million dollar minute. I did a lot of commercials, made a good, oh, okay. good living, make the commercials, bought me my home. You know, the- I have nothing bad to say about doing commercials and you learn, a- it's a great way to learn camera skills. And mm-hmm. I, then I got on the guiding light, which was a soap opera. And again, Mm -hmm. huge learning curve because the, you, you're, I don't know how they do them now, but at the time you're creating an hour of filmed product a day, which is insane and impossible. So they have three cameras and the director calls camera A, camera B, camera C. So while you're filming, the editing is happening. Right. And you yeah. have to be aware of which camera is on your face and turning out, making sure that the light is hitting you and no movement. That was the hardest thing for me to learn being theater trained with you, you. They didn't have time to move the cameras. If you were to suddenly move and go get a drink from the cabinet, right. they didn't have time for that. So you had to really stand still and the cameras do all the moving for you. That was so hard for me. I can remember pressing my leg against the foot of a couch just to release that tension of the the impulse mm. to move just i had to curl my toes sometimes just to just keep myself planted and speak the lines and no i would have had to learn 40 pages a night Good Lord. that was another important skill and that was that was also an introduction. There's another skill that really stands you well. If you are on a TV series where you're an ongoing thing, which is playing a three dimensional character where one week you're in love with the guy and the next week you're trying to kill him. Right. So to be able to play three dimensionally and like plant the seeds of is she a good girl or is she a bad girl? You know, having a little bit of. Three, it's 360 degrees of this could be possibly anything and lead mm-hmm. to everything and putting in little, little Easter eggs of, Oh, I remember when then people can call back and they'll go, yeah, but she had that shifty eye little thing. So if you're playing an ongoing character, the, the writers can see something and go, Oh, I loved when she did that thing. Right. Let's start writing writing for her i think if you watch succession i think you could see it was so exciting when the writers started writing for the actors oh the, and, the show and,
0: on, on HBO, yeah, right the, now, yeah. yeah
1: it's such a brilliant show and everybody sounds different they all have their own voice mm-hmm. because i think the writers started letting the actors do their thing it's very exciting so anyway the soap opera taught me you know I learned a lot from the people who came before, like we could be having this horrible fight scene and they were like, but we need to show that there's some heat behind it because they could have us in bed together next week.
0: Okay. So they're just always conscious of, you know, the multiple layers going on with that well, anyone who's been in a relationship, it's like you can love someone and want to strangle them at the same time. It's like, you know, that, that, that exists.
1: I talked about this with McKinsey all the time. In Shakespeare, I actually feel sorry for Richard III. I feel sorry for sure, yeah. Aaron. And they're like, they're horrified. They're like, you feel sorry for Aaron? And I'm like, <laughs> he's been enslaved? Now he's a prisoner. He's ostracized and pushed aside. And now he has this child. That, yes. If you don't feel all those feelies about all the characters, in a long three hours in the theater.
0: Right, right, right. And yeah, I mean, and and of course, like, it's kind of, it's, it's a little related to what you're saying about Nick Bottom. It's like, if you're playing Richard the third, I mean, maybe there's some level of the, you know, you can, you can consider the consciousness of like, does he feel sorry for himself or, or whatever? But, you know, eventually, you, you know, right. You're, you're trying to put yourself in those given circumstances of, of what was it like for this character to grow up this way? And, and, yes. you know, yeah. and to feel the the hatred or or the dismissal or or whatever it is and and you know you can pick any character you want i think of the third is a is a you know not easy one to talk about but there's a lot to talk about in terms of the psychological makeup of that particular character i was curious where or where and how you got involved with tony and tina's wedding
1: okay so that, tony and tina's that came we're between
0: all... that between came between like what henry five and guiding light somewhere in there oh, or? no
1: it was way after oh, guiding light um oh, really yeah. Oh, wait a minute. No, I was on the guiding light at the same time. What am I saying? So after I got on the guiding light, Tony and Tina's wedding cake was, it was, it was a, it was a cross between our Hofster friends and our David Kaplan friends. So oh, okay. all the Hofster people, that's Casaro, my girlfriend Elizabeth Herring, who I, Brought in from Lambda, including James Altoona, Lambda Friends. We started taking class with David Kaplan, putting on all these amazing shows like Jean Genet's The Screens in an Abandoned Supermarket, doing like kind of immersive guerrilla style theater that was kind of like the 80s in New York where you could do that kind of thing. And Nancy and Mark Nasser, who were stu- friends of mine from college, used to riff on these characters they created, Tony and Tina. Tina, get in here! You know, where's my dinner? You know, that kind of thing. Sure. And they had this idea. I think it was Mark Nasser said, "What if? I wonder if it would work if you did Tony and Tina gets married, and the audience are the guests at the wedding." And then we started having meetings and Mm -hmm. talking about how to make that work. And I was in the very early meetings and like Jack Friss, who is um, a dear friend of mine, we had meetings at um, his apartment talking about all the different things we could do and came up with the characters' names. So my name, I... I came up with the name Donna Marsala. I named my boyfriend Wally Fabrizio was a good friend of mine from high school. So Dominic Fabrizio stealing names that just made us laugh. And I remember going to a wedding where one of the bridesmaids sang at the reception and when she was hit a, hit a high note, she ripped the choker off her, her neck. And I thought that was so funny. I also, one of my job jobs on Long Island was I worked at a tuxedo rental place. So I had tons of stories about things that had gone wrong Uh at, weddings and we just started improvising and we started talking about how we could make this work and our first show sure first show was in a loft downtown and the people who came to see it loved it and it just grew and grew and grew until we were doing it at carmelita's reception house on 13th and 3rd and people magazine came and that was it it became a massive hit you couldn't get tickets
0: Wow. And, and, and did you feel like you had a strong improv background going into that? I mean, was that something that you wanted to do? You wanted to pursue? You were excited about that? I mean, cause that's a very specific world within acting, you know, doing improv or, or sketch comedy or things like that. I mean, never,
1: yeah, you know. I never had any interest in it. Here's the thing. And I, I am totally not schooled in improv, never take, taken a Viola Spolin workshop or class mm-hmm. or anything. So I, all I know is, you know, always say yes, don't say no. And we didn't even do workshops with like the rule, improv rules or anything. Hmm. I've never thought of myself as a funny person. And again, playing the given circumstances. Donna right. Marsabola doesn't think she's funny when she goes up to somebody and says, so who's sexier, Madonna or Marilyn Monroe? I yep. wasn't trying to be funny, but people would, would, Let find that very funny. Going up and having the conversation. If you told me I had to be funny, I would be. I would be paralyzed. But Mm. I was just embodied this character of like I work at the barefoot peddler, and I was the Madonna wannabe. This was in the eighties, so I had the black rubber bracelets on my arm and like high heeled shoes and copying her makeup. And Dominic and I did, I've had the time of my life. We learned the whole dance at the wedding reception. We did the dance with the lift and everything, but I wasn't trying to be funny. I was being Donna Masala and Yeah. yeah, totally obsessed with Madonna and you know the improvs would just come out right. of now, being now, was really. Any,
0: was it was any art imitating life? Were you Elizabeth totally obsessed with Madonna at all, or or was that?
1: <laughs> I love Madonna, but I was definitely not a Madonna wannabe.
0: Okay, you're um, not as obsessed as a. As no, a,
1: no, but I yeah, I just thought that it, it was just so perfect. Like we we in the in the show we did this dance lip sync thing, oh, okay. and that was very funny because that number changed through the years. When we first did it, when we first did the show, Tina and her girlfriends, we won a lip sync contest. And so we, at the, at the wedding reception, we did Love is a Battlefield. Pat Benatar. Yep. But Donna took, took, take, take her talent very, very seriously. I sang with the band. Oh my gosh. Well, I think we sang that, that song, love a lift us up where we belong. Oh, yeah, that sure. song. And the songs would change as the decades went on. We did this show for a long, long time. I always said, closed at the end of the show I said, I'm Donna. And I want to sing Tina's favorite song, Desperado. We always closed <laughs> with Desperado. <laughs> so it was, it was a blast. It was a lot of fun putting on a show, with your friends, and then when it became a smash hit, it was just like crazy, crazy, crazy time. And so, But yeah. I, I was doing the soap opera right. during the day. I would get up at 5 in the morning, go to work, shoot all day, and then race in a cab down to the theater, change my clothes, and then I'd have to go a little bit after the show and learn 40 pages. It was
0: insanity.
1: Wow. Yeah, it was crazy time. You could only do it when you're in your
0: 20s. And, and were you thinking about, okay, this is the direction. I mean, cause, you know, by this point, your dad is doing more and more film, you, you know, really, you know, really establishing himself, you know, as, as a name actor and, and, and someone that people are starting to recognize and probably even a household name to some degree at that point. Were you conscious of this is the direction I want my career to go in? This is what I want to do. Or were you just. Was it just get up and do the next thing and try not to fall down and and that kind of thing? I
1: I have to say, looking looking, I have a different perspective looking back. When yeah, I was sure. in it, it was I, I, no disrespect to Tony and Tina's Wedding, but it was exhausting, hard work for very little money. Yeah, and I desperately every time we did a new iteration of it, it's like, why am I not on Broadway so that I can say, "Oh, I'm sorry, I'm not available." Like I right, desperately right. wanted a film career or to be doing really important legit theater so that I wasn't free and able to do Tony and Tina's wedding. It just didn't work out that way. Cause it was, it was really exhausting. It was right. exhausting. And then when the guiding light ended, I went up to the Jiva theater and did a play. It was written by Gerson Kanan. I did that play. And then Tony and Tina's wedding was moving to, to LA. Mm-hmm. So I literally packed a car, drove to, Rochester, New York, and then got on a plane from New York and flew to L.A. with a bicycle and everything I owned. Wow! All the suitcases filled with everything, and and I landed in L.A. a day before our first preview. I uh, I remember, I must have had a Walkman. Walkmans must have been invented sure. because oh, yeah. Yeah. the new song was "Cold Hearted Snake" at that point, and I was trying to memorize that song. And of course, I had to learn the dance when I got to LA. So that was my move to LA. I wish I, yeah.
0: Did you did you get you know were there agents pursuing you guys as a result of the play, or did you start you know you know your introduction to LA? Were you were you making inroads yourself, or or how was that all all coming together?
1: I still was with Susan Smith, so it was with Susan Smith in okay, L.A. So, and so and, she, oh, yeah. okay,
0: so she had two yeah. two offices there. She was, Yes, an yeah,
1: okay. L.A. office and a New York office. So my agents all came to see Tony Tin and I will say this: our contract was for four months, and the minute the contract was up, I I was done. It it, it was because being a bridesmaid, we danced in very high heels for three right. hours. Yeah. It was a lot, but it was it was so thrilling to do it in L.A. Because when we opened, we were. A very highly anticipated hit. And I remember mm-hmm, opening mm-hmm. night, Kirk Douglas was there. Rod Steiger was there. The stars that came to see that show and groupies. Zelda yeah. Rubinstein <laughs> was a groupie. Frankie valley and Harry Anderson were groupies. They came re- repeatedly to oh, the geez, show. Wow. But my biggest thrill, the biggest one, I I couldn't even speak. I couldn't even go near her because I was paralyzed, was Fade Dunaway. So remember in wow. the 80s, like- yeah, yeah. Faye Dunaway was a god to me, and she was there, and I I got goosebumps just thinking about what a thrill it was for for her to be in the audience. I adored and worshipped
0: her. So what I'm curious about is, like, how you started to get work in L.A.
1: So I started auditioning in L.A., and one of the first jobs I got—again, I've always had these—the same story happen— over and over again. So I got I got casted South Coast rep and became friends with Barbara Dowling, who was also in the show, who was married to, at the time to Colin Meany.
0: Oh, okay. Colin,
1: yeah. yeah, and Colin Meaney was really good friends with James Lancaster, who did Rat the Skull with my dad in Chicago. I was divorced at the time. James came down to the opening night of this David Hare play, and he's my husband now.
0: Oh, so okay. my
1: husband did a play with my father, Rat in the Skull, in Chicago at the Wisdom Bridge in 1985, and now that's, that's who I'm married to. So I did that play. I just wanted to fill in that. I did the play down the South Coast, and then when I was while I was doing that play, Colm Meany was doing Deep Space Nine, mm-hmm. and in the play was an actor called Simon Templeman, whose wife, Rosalind Chow, just got cast as Colm's wife on Deep Space Nine. Then after Secret Rapture, I got cast on Best of Both Worlds, the um Star Trek next generation. Oh,
0: okay. okay. So it's
1: about twenty-eight and went in to audition for this sci fi show and mm. got cast in this two parter. And here I am thirty years later, and I'm about to fly to London for a Star Trek convention. It's Just crazy. It's great. I mean, completely insane.
0: Well, it's great that you had such a a good experience with with Star Trek and it it, it keeps going. So you're in LA, you you know, you're doing Star Trek. And I mean, again, like, did you, were you just starting to go out more regularly? Because it seemed like you also made a bit of a shift, at least from a resume perspective, from doing theater to doing, you know, focusing on TV and film. And like that became, you know, more of what you were focused on. And was that just, was that a conscious yeah. decision or, or just no, a natural the, progression?
1: The L.A. theater scene is so different from the New
0: York sure, theater yeah. scene.
1: But what I had in New York was a group of friends, a band of brothers, a yep. company that I belonged to. Mm-hmm, and what mm-hmm. I found out when I got to L.A. is I can remember Antius starting up and being formed yep. around yep. that time. And I can't remember if I had an opportunity to join them or not. But – I think that I'm I'm witnessing my son go through this right now, who is a a 24 year old actor and the agents, I feel like his agents want to send him out for TV and film because they think he's going to be, you know, a a, a star, you know, which is a really valid reason, but also let's be honest, it makes them more money. So they're not sending him out for many theater auditions and he He also did, has done quite a bit of Shakespeare in the park, that kind of thing. Mm. Independent Shakespeare company has done three seasons with them and he misses it and he wants it. So I think he wants to get a few credits under his belt and a few, you know, good, healthy paychecks. And then he will probably be able to say to them, look, I'm taking summer off and I want to go to Utah or I want to go to Oregon. I want to, I want to get back to it because he misses it. So it's really hard to know when you're in it, like, is he the next timothy chalamet who knows until you throw the spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks so he's at that stage right now and i can see so when i came out here i I did get a few theater auditions but it was like i'm 28 which is old for starting things in la for a female let's Mm -hmm. be honest Mm -hmm. let's see what sticks and i I got lots of little pieces in TV shows, still making a ton of commercials, okay. which is, you know, yeah, I, 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 I made, I probably made a national commercial a month, which was wow. great, great money. Yeah, I was, I was a queen of the you, million
0: dollar. What were you attributing that to? Like, I mean, did you just like, did, did you feel like you locked in on like, all right, I I know how, the, I know this medium, I know how it works, like, or do you, I mean, there's always a, a some sense of, of. You know, right place, right time, right look. But did you just, yeah, I mean, how do you, how do you explain doing
1: what had, what would happen is certain directors would say, oh, I love you. So I was, it. I became, I had a wonderful uh, relationship with a director called Leslie Dector. Who okay. would bring me in uh, before the clients? The clients make the decision, but sure. he championed me,
0: and we're shortlisted. I mean, really. I mean, you know that which was great. I mean, that that yeah. I mean, it, right. but 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 it comes from you know your work ethic, your your personality, the relationship that you know. I mean, that you're a professional that they they like I, working with you.
1: It, I think that in commercials, if you think of yourself making a one minute movie. the look is really, really important, probably more important than the acting. But Mm -hmm. if you have the right look and you can act and really serve the material and make people believe this is really happening, then it depends on the director and the client if they value that. If they, You have to do the same thing. You do more takes making a commercial than I've ever done making a film or a TV show. Mm -hmm. So after the 75th time of you biting (laughs) into a meatball, and if you can make that seem like it's the first time, that's gold. You know, it's really... Really hard to do. I, I remember being on a commercial for a, a car rental company and we were driving out in Joshua Tree and the guy who was my husband was not a professional actor and the director getting very frustrated with him because he he kept saying, We need to see it in your eyes. And the actor turned to me in desperation and said, I don't know how mm. do I how do I do that? And I said and I said to him we're on vacation, we have young children, we're in the desert, the sun is setting. You need to fill your body from the tip of your toes to the top of your head with golden, radiant beams of joy and happiness and content and make them shoot out your eyeballs. I can't explain it any other way. And he looked at me like I was insane. And I said, you, you have to look like you, there's nowhere else on earth you'd rather be than here in this moment. And you have to do it 180 times. Wow. And so it's sort of trying to explain how to parallel park. <laughs> or how to how to breathe? If you if you, I mean, I'm a I am that is another superpower. I can parallel park on the head of a I was going to say you,
0: you're good at breathing, little, Elizabeth. That, that, that's yeah, good to got know. the breathing
1: down, <laughs> got the breathing down. But my sons are like, how did you park in that space? I cannot break down the steps for you. I just have an innate sense of mm. how to parallel park. And if you don't know how to shoot beams of golden joy out of your eyeballs. Maybe it's not for you. Maybe it's not the business for you. I don't know how to explain it any other way. And he looked at me like I was insane. But I said, I think that's what the director wants from you, is that you could die right now and you will have lived a fulfilling, happy, joy-filled life.
0: All right, now... Do you feel like the director got what he needed on that, on that day or?
1: he probably just, (laughs) yeah, you know, cut his losses. Exactly.
0: From when you were in New York, like after college, I mean, did you have any other day jobs or were you pretty much supporting yourself off commercials?
1: Oh my gosh. That's a wonderful question. When I was in school, I told you I worked for a tuxedo rental place. I worked right. for a rotor runa company. Okay. My father made me wanted me to work. He wanted me to have a work ethic and not just assume that he was gonna be paying for everything. And I think it was really helpful and important that my sisters and I supported ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so in New York, I worked at um, a restaurant. I was. I waited on tables. I worked at. I worked at a restaurant called T.J. Tucker's in New York City. I made a lot of good friends there, and it was owned by Tommy O'Neill and Tucker Fredrickson. It was a sports bar. It was the perfect place for me because I don't know or care anything about sports ball. So <laughs> when I would be there, and Bubba Smith would come in, or Dick Stockton, or these coaches, the guys who owned the Giants. I didn't care. I didn't know who they were. It meant nothing to me. I wasn't... Keith Hernandez was a regular and saw me in Big Hug. You know, they were really, really nice. I was the one saying, the Oscars are on. Can we turn off the game and put the... (laughs) Can we put the Tonys on? Like,
0: (laughs) that
1: was me. But it was... I made a lot of friends there and that that was a fun job. But yeah, so I've got to say, I worked... Um, day jobs up until I did the soap opera. And then I didn't have time for that anymore. And so I've been supporting myself solely as an actress. Six years ago, I started teaching at mm-hmm. Los Angeles County High School for the Arts. That's only two days a week. And that's a labor of love. It definitely isn't for the money.
0: Sure, sure, sure. As most you know, teachers, right. Yeah,
1: exactly. My husband and I, I will, I will say if any aspiring actors are out there listening, we've been very, very lucky, but we've also were very smart with our money. We made a lot mm. of money on commercials and we sucked it away and we saved all our money. And we've had actor strikes where friends of ours have lost their homes yeah. and we we have very, very, very frugal. We live very frugally. We spend money on travel. Travel is something that we care sure. a lot about. My husband's from Ireland, so going back to Europe every year to visit family was mm. what we saved up for. And also, we saved for college. We wanted our kids to have an amazing yep. education. And so we've... You know, we we were not. We I never ever buy Starbucks or Jamba Juice. We don't fritter our money away. Yeah. Ask anybody who knows us. We've never we never even had babysitters. We had we were in a babysitting co op. He does the pool care. The, the we don't have gardeners. We don't have cleaning people. Obviously, you know, we are very very flinty with our money, and it paid off. You know, because we have we are we're comfortable, and we are so. I I I'd never I've not had to work. A day job for the money since I would say the mid eighties. Well, so I mean, very and, blessed.
0: I mean, yeah, that, that is really, you know, fortunate, you know, that, that your career has, has afforded that. I mean, I also wonder in terms of the lifestyle, how much of your early years, you know, seeing your dad struggle and like you said, the heat being turned off and all this kind of stuff that I, I'm not going to project that, you know, you're, you come from a poverty mentality, but, but I think those kinds of circumstances do have an impact on people of like, You know, you know what it's like to have without, to go without, you know, and those things. So, you know, what's interesting,
1: what's interesting is that is true. My husband has, my husband has taken frugality to an art level. Like (laughs) he's, I mean, he did grow up on a farm where everything was reused and reused and reused until it was unusable. And he does definitely comes from Mm -hmm. his mother, who's 95 went through the war. Definitely. Mm -hmm. He tells the story about his mom made all the sweaters, knitted all the sweaters. And there were four kids and his father would come downstairs in a new sweater, but James would recognize the colors because when they outgrew the sweaters, she would unravel them, tie them all together and knit new sweaters. Holy cow. Reusing the yard. So he comes from that war mentality, and I do too, but even more so than that, I believe, I think I can say this right now without offending anybody, when my father did start making money, he was throwing it around, (laughs) throwing it around. It was four-star everything, cars to the airport, everything. And in case anybody's wondering, no, there was nothing left. He lived life to the hilt, and he enjoyed it and was incredibly generous, but spent it like it was a contest. And Mm. I think from watching that Mm. and the massive – I've had my credit card taken away and cut in half. That was his card, and that's humiliating. And so from watching him spend like a crazy person, we Mm. both were like – you never know when you're, if you're ever going to work again. So we, right. need, and we wanted our kids to be able to go to college. We put two kids through college, one, their dream schools, DePaul Theater School and NYU Film School. And we have no loans. And, you know, we were, we saved every single penny so that we would be able to do that. And we that finished that. Yeah. They're very, very proud about that. Yeah. yeah. Very proud. And,
0: and I think I, I remember reading this, like, did, did you have any sense at the time of, of how lucky your dad was, it, you know, like, I mean, as a, as a kid, when he first got got started, I mean, like when, when did it like really drop for you that you're like, oh my God, my dad was so lucky, you know, like that, that, you know, th- how long I did think, that take?
1: I think at the time when we were living through it, yeah, you know, like for instance, this is crazy for me to remember. His agent had to talk him into taking the role in 10.
0: Oh wow! He okay. was
1: 36 when he did yep. 10, and so I must have been if he if I was 16 when Semi Tough came out, and that was there was like probably his next film. So Semi Tough after after Semi he never stopped working. After 10, he was receiving offers only. He didn't have to audition mm. for films yeah. anymore because that that was a standout role. He was sure, the eye sure. of the storm. You know all the crazy farce right. swir- swirling around him. So at the time, it was that it was. We all felt that he was getting what he deserved. That he was really, really good, and you know, it was it was understandable that he should be recognized. That he should be working. I don't think we realized. My God, he was lucky until much later. I think it's so hard to separate hindsight from when you yeah. realize something in the moment. Sure. sure. I think that. When he was able to do theater at the Goodman, like mm-hmm. do his plays at the Goodman, yeah. and had an agent who allowed him to do that, to take the time off to make the way less money, and come back to a thriving film career, I think that was Wow, this doesn't grow on trees. Somebody who's Mm -hmm, able mm -hmm. to do anything he wants to do, to do theater in Stratford, to go to Broadway, but still be able to do film roles. I think it was much later where we realized that doesn't, that's, that's not common. A lot of people dream of having a career like that, that he actually has.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and even success in any one of those mediums whether it's theater or film or, you know, doing that kind of stuff, but but it's certainly, like you said, having that choice. And I know, you know, in the, in the later nineties, as he started doing more theater, he he won a couple Tony awards. Um, I, I, I remember watching the filmed version of, of death of a salesman. I, I remember like seeing that on a Sunday afternoon and like, that was the time where like, you would just you know, I think I could TiVo it, but basically you're just clearing your day. You're like, all right, I'm going to watch this. And it was great. It was, you know, I, I didn't want to watch anything else for those three hours. It was just like, this, this is great because you realize just how like at that time, how special it was to be able to see a theater production that you weren't able to attend live, you know, that, that you yeah. know, could go from somewhere else. But I was just wondering, like, did you ever, I mean, I obviously you and your dad would be, would have totally different careers. Did you ever feel in his shadow, did you ever want what he wanted, want, oh. what he had? I mean, you know, were, were you kind of expecting or hoping that your career would follow a similar trajectory?
1: Yes, of course. I, you know, pined for that. That was the original plan. But mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you something. Everything changed when I had my children. Really? So I did things in the reverse. He had mm-hmm. his kids really, really young. Was sure. tw- he was 21 when I was born. So he had to catch up with his own life. Came out to L.A., you know, made all new friends, a whole new life, a new wife, everything. Mm -hmm. I did the reverse. I kind of worked. And I, you know, when you're a girl, obviously you have a certain window during which you could have children. So in 1993, I got married when I was 32. And then immediately started trying to have children. And I remember very clearly having a conversation with my father. We were having lunch in LA at the Ivy, as one does. (laughs) And my children were little babies. So I had two boys, um, two years apart. And I said to him... I think it's must must be a very Catholic thing where you just kind of go, God, I'm gonna make a deal with you. I let my children be happy and outlive me, and I don't care if I ever work again. And I told my dad that. I said, I don't care if I ever work again. I wow. kind of lost my ambition. All I wanted to do was be at home and watch them grow. And I think because I was older, I knew that it was gonna go in the blink of an eye, and I didn't want to miss anything. Kids, I became yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I became completely hands-on mom. I was the president of every fundraising organization at their schools oh, wow. and kind of I remember when they were in elementary school thinking you know I'm just going to give away all my plays all that's over and my agents would send me in for things and the greatest thing is is that I thought well this is going to be the end of commercials. I never worked more when I was pregnant using my pregnant belly for commercials wow, sonogram my. doctors insurance Yeah, yeah. Uh, pregnant. Well I remember being a pregnant mom in a tornado, my house, they had wrecked a house, and it was for all mm. state. and our, we had a tornado and I was days away from giving birth. I worked more when I was pregnant, and then the whole the kids worked we made we made a lot of money, and I meant that I could be with them, and I didn't have to be away. but I said that to my dad i said i never i don't care if I ever work again mm-hmm. and He looked at me and he said, "I envy you mm. and so that's you know, we talk about how proud I was of him, how he was living the dream. But the downside is, is that, you know, he didn't spend as much time with us as he would have liked. And he talked about that in in his later years. He regretted not being with us more. The graduations missed, the christenings, the, you know, the plays that we were in, the school Mm -hmm. shows, all that kind of thing. You know, he missed out on a lot. And I remember him saying at one point, you know, I don't even know when your kids, when your birthdays are. And I was like, yeah, you know, you might not want to tell us that. You know, <laughs> he just was—he was a, was a different—he was wired differently. Sure. I, when I had my kids, that became it for me. And I remember being president of fundraising at the school and using my acting powers to get—I could get up and speak passionately. And clearly and eloquently about my cause and giving to the school and supporting your kids. And so I felt, oh, this is what I'm going to do now for the rest of my life, using my skills in order to speak well in front of people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, it just, I think it was 20 years before I did Cyrano at ISC and I was like, oh my God, I need glasses. (laughs) What do I do? I have to get contact lenses? I mean, just being 20 years went by and my husband and I thought, we don't know how to do this anymore. Wow,
0: well, uh, you know, well, I, decided, yeah. I was still
1: working. I did the mentorist. Sure. I I did.
0: Yeah, you, did, you know, you, you had a, you had a lot of TV roles during that time. It seemed like as your kids were growing up that you. Would, yeah, but you it were wasn't working.
1: Pri- it wasn't the priority anymore, and right, we definitely right. did not want our kids to pursue this business. So really? we. Yeah, I remember our kids being in the car saying, what do you guys actually do for work? Are you retired? It was like, don't worry about it. As long (laughs) as there's food on the table, don't worry about it. We never took them to premieres or anything. And we we sent them to a really hardcore academic school, LACES, the Los Angeles Center for Enriched Studies. And that didn't go so well. They ended up at the art school where I teach. And they ended up one being an actor, one being a filmmaker. So you see how well that worked.
0: Well, I, when was, I, said- <laughs> I was, yeah, I, well, I was curious about that because, you know, your son being now a third generation actor and, and whatever, you know, however much time he did spend with his grandfather in, in, in his younger years, in his early years, I was curious, like, was acting, you know, like you brought up the example of, of, a you know, a, a restaurant family. I mean, was, was acting a very practical thing or was it, was it like, really creative and free flowing ideas and, or was it just, well, this is the bit like, was it, was there more, was there more of a practical business side to what the, you know, family did or, or was it all kind of loose and flowing or, or a combination thereof?
1: So when my father did, what did the see? He did three seasons at the Stratford Shakespeare Festival. And that was one of those places where the first time, first time he went up there, we stayed up there for two weeks and I thought, This has been here all along, and I didn't know about it. Oh, my God, because that is Mecca. It's just a dream come true. And I think the second time we went up there, my son, Jack, was... In between his sophomore and junior year in, in, um, high school, his fresh, between his freshman year and sophomore year, Kitty Swink asked me if he would be a flayance and young McDuff in their production of Macbeth. So oh, okay. he went from not being an actor at all, got to, into Loxa, and then he spent a summer immersed with Rob Nagel and Bo Foxworth and Armin and Jessica Kobzanski directing mm-hmm. with Peter Van Norden and all those anti players yeah, sure. for all summer. It's Like, yeah, I think you caught up to the rest of the kids at your school. <laughs> and then the so- summer between his sophomore and junior year, since we were going to be in Stratford, they had a two week Shakespeare program. So he would, we did the same thing my father did with me with Williamstown mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Shakespeare and Company. So he did a two week program at the Stratford Company. And of course, my dad came and we watched their presentation and it It seems remarkable now telling you this, but this was just so normal, so our family conversations would be about, did you see the Hamlet? Yeah, we need to go see what shows are we seeing tonight right, right. at uh Stratford, and then we would very common talk of you know my father would and I would talk on the phones about this production very versus that Toby and that Toby, and you know well, when I saw we you know uh we talked a lot about different productions, and that was very normal for us. I miss him so much because I miss those conversations.
0: And I mean did were you did you have an insight into his his process or his I mean I'll I'll just, you know Uh, one can assume every actor has self doubts and things like that. So were you privy to those kinds of, I mean, cause he gave some, you know, amazing, amazing performances, but were you witness to like him not knowing if this is going to work out and and how did you kind of interpret that for your own career? And, and, you know,
1: okay. I think it's safe to say, and I could say, I mean, I would say this to him, he had this amazing relationship with Robert Foles at the Goodman. And I think he got a little bit cocky cause they did a Galileo, And they had done a bunch of plays, I think, Touch of the Poet. My father would just say yes now to the O'Neill plays, whatever O'Neill play they were doing. I think he must have at that point had already done Long Day's Journey in Chicago. And Touch of the Poet, I think what he did was he said yes to it before reading it. And Mm. he got to Chicago and we were talking on the phone and he said, I've made a terrible mistake. There's no way I can play this part. Uh I'm really freaking out. And I got off the phone, I said to my husband, I said, hey, I'm sure he said yes and didn't read it. That play really, really scared him. It was really hard. And when I flew to Chicago and saw it, my sister and I were clutching each other. We were sobbing. It really cut to the bone. It's all about basically this, What the well, I suppose different people will see different things. But for us, what killed us was this arrogant, narcissistic, self-centered man Who bullies his daughter and his children and they pray for him to become kinder and more docile. And then something happens overnight and he does. He becomes this like squirmy kind of obsequious, you know, crawling on his belly worm of a man. Yeah. And it just destroyed us. It destroyed us. And I think it scared him. Cause it, it really cut to the bone. It cut really, really close and it made him go, I don't know how I could do this. I will say this when he did Iceman Cometh, you know, he had been divorced. He was remarried to his wife who I adore and Hickey, you know, spoiler alert, has this major, major, major guilt about his relationship with his wife. And I said to my father after the show, so did you find it hard to fathom those depths and and go there? And go to, you know, this, go to where the similarities are between you and Hickey. And he was like, what are you talking about? We're nothing like. So I don't know if he did inside personally and just really. wasn't comfortable talking about it with me. Mm-hmm. Or if he just, maybe he was just, I'm an actor and this is what I do. Right. I find that hard to believe. I mm-hmm. find it hard to believe that he, yeah, that it would never did.
0: cross his mind. Right. Yeah.
1: Or this is another very common thing. Actors or a lot of actors who don't like talking about the process. Who right. think if you shine a, a spotlight on it, it goes away. It's ephemeral and it will just, if you analyze it too much, it will disappear. And the power that you have able to go there will disappear if you analyze it too much. Mm-hmm. So it could have been any one of those things. So, you know, I did try to have a conversation with him about that. But, you know, he talked about death of a salesman was like stepping on a moving train and three mm-hmm. hours later, you're there. I know that when I saw him do Death of a Salesman, I saw it in Chicago and I saw it in London. I missed it in New York because I was giving birth or had just given birth. I missed okay, the Tonys. Yeah. I missed the Tonys because oh, I was out geez. to here. So I think I had just gotten pregnant. You're not supposed to fly in your first trimester. Right, of course, yeah. So the Tonys, I was about to give birth any second. The Tonys for Death of a Salesman and oh, it killed me to not be there. But I was there for Long Day's Journey. I was at mm. the Tonys for that. But when, um, I saw Death of a Salesman, especially in London, because he had been doing it for a while. Something I don't think a lot of people realize is I'm sure there were other 63, 65 year old Willie's, but at the time, he was the only famous one, the only one of note that was sure. the actual age of Willie. Lee J. Cogg was 36, Dustin Hoffman wow. was 45, wow. Philip C. Hoffman was in his 40s. Mm-hmm, like, dad mm-hmm. was 63 when he started the Willie journey. And he did it for so many, he did it for a lot of years. He yeah. did it in Chicago. Oh, of course I saw it in LA. He did it in Chicago. He did it in LA. He did it in New York. He did it in London. And I'm going to tell you, he physically could not do the things that he did on stage.
0: Mm-hmm. It's that
1: whole thing of like the adrenaline of you being able to lift a car off right. of somebody. Right. If you told him fall down on the floor and then get up. He wouldn't have been able to do it, but Mm. he did it in the show. And because of we are his family, when those moments came up, those physical moments came up, we were all like,
0: yeah, edge of your seat. Right. Right. Yeah.
1: Cause he had really bad um, knees and hips and shoulders and back pain. He lived in pain for many, many years because of stupid football, football injuries. Mm. And in London, he had a hernia in his stomach. Oh, geez! So he was in really excruciating, debilitating pain. Yeah. But also, I really didn't know if he was going to come home from London. I was very, mm. very worried about him. We we're wow. really—you can't do a show with a leaking, bleeding hernia. You can't yeah, do that. It's, it, it's wow. it a tear in his stomach wall. It was it was painful. It was really excruciating to watch. So I just wanted to say that. He was 75 when he did Pozzo in Waiting for Godot in Mm -hmm. Stratford. And then after that, he did Steward of Christendom in LA and at the age of 75. And that was when I first noticed age catching up with him. Mm. That he couldn't do things that he was able to do earlier than that. But he always said, I want to be drop The curtain come down and the ankles pulled out from under the curtain. He wanted to work until he dropped dead on stage. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, yes. In age, catching a view at seventy five is a pretty good run. We we can all be so lucky. It's a
1: mere. (laughs) It's we do not understand how he lived to be eighty one because my father was a famous. I know. I'm not. I'm not telling tales out of school. Famous party man. Party. He was. It's a shame he never played full stuff because he lived wow,
0: yeah. a full
1: staffian life, a huge, capacious appetite for everything.
0: Mm, mm. I am kind of curious, you know, you, you, you mentioned that lunch you had with your dad where, where he said he envied you. Do, do you, you know, well, there's a couple of questions I have, but the, the first one I'll ask is, do you suspect that part of the reason he, like, do you think he ever felt that he had to keep working because of, you know, expectations of him or or things like that. He okay, so lived. He-
1: it was the only time he was happy. Really? Wow. He was happier on a set or actually on stage more than anything in the world. It was, like I mm. said, it was like a drug for him. He ha- It was the only thing that made him happy. When he said he envied me, it wasn't yep. that he wanted to change places with me. Right. He couldn't imagine what that would be like. Mm. to only care about your children growing up. And, I'm, right. and I don't say that to cast aspersions to say he was lacking, you know, it was an interesting relationship. I, yeah. I can't say he would have ever won father of the year, but I do think watching your father pursue what he loves doing is a wonderful role model. It's, yeah. it's I don't feel, and we got to travel the world and see, Wonderful things, and you know we were on the set in Italy of uh, belly of an architect we what we got in exchange for having a dad around all the time mm-hmm. i wouldn't I wouldn't change anything I really wouldn't. It was really, really exciting and thrilling and fun he He wasn't envious because he wanted to change places with me he well, I think right. he would have he would have liked to know what that felt like, mm-hmm. and that's the envy is that. I wish I was built that way so that I could find happiness and joy and solace in that.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a balance or a challenge that a lot of people face is how do you achieve or can you achieve such success in your career and also be, you know, very present to your family or relationships in your life? I mean, I think it's it's a tough thing to balance and I and I, I think it's, it's about as rare as, you know, somebody becoming a movie star. You know, it's like, it's, yeah, it's very hard to balance that stuff. I mean, like you, there just isn't time for everything.
1: Yeah. I remember my son had it got a job. He, he was a, he was a senior in high school. He was having the third callback and they said, do not come to the callback unless you are fully prepared to sign on the dotted line. It's a Nickelodeon TV movie in mm. stu- shooting in Spain all through May and June and we sat him down and this was from his very first de- uh, film audition. We said, this is the thing, Jack, if you take this job, you have to go to Spain. You miss the play, your senior play that you're starring in. Yeah. You miss your graduation. You miss the prom. You miss all of these parties and all the end of the year festivities. And their graduation was at Disney Hall. It was a big deal, mm-hmm, a big mm-hmm. deal. And yeah. we said, the, if you got this close on this job, you're going to get another job. And you you never get a chance to do your graduation and your problem, your senior problem, or your senior play. Right. You know, I think that you're the stress that you will have letting down everybody, have, making them recast. He really, really wanted to do it. But when mm-hmm. we laid out everything that he was going to be sacrificing, and I think that's the thing you have to do every single t- job. It's really easy ahead of time to do that. But if you're shooting something in Australia and or New Zealand and you're going to be gone for eight months and while you're there, your kid gets sick or your kid has a catastrophe, failing something, needs you,
0: needs you. Like
1: if I was in, if I was somewhere else out of town, up in Vancouver and my kid had a flu and a fever, those are the decisions that we actors have to make all the time thinking ahead all the time. And it's only the very powerful can say, I'm getting on a plane. I don't care what you say.
0: Right. Right. You
1: know, James, my husband was shooting episodes of Jag when his father died Mm -hmm. and they kept his father on ice at the funeral home waiting for James. It was like another two days of filming. Mm -hmm. And James said, the director said, Oh, I missed both of my parents' funerals. And James said to the director, yeah, that's not happening. Wow. So you 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 have to make these deals all the time.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, well. The other the other word that you uh, brought up was was process. And we talked a little about about your dad and all that. But what I wanted to ask about is, you know, that that you made this transition into teaching, and you know, I know you do a lot of audition stuff and uh, you know, audition coaching. What was the decision there to like you know when did you decide I I want to be a teacher and and then you know was it a later decision of specifically focusing on auditions
1: So I was always um helping friends with auditions like people would call me all the time hmm. like casting stuff and oh, say okay, I have yeah. an audition coming up will you work with me I was doing this for free And then a girlfriend of mine was like, you're insane. You're really, really good at this. Why are you giving this away? And when Jack got into Loxa, Mm -hmm. I didn't work with him on his audition for Loxa, but I did help choose his monologues. And I decided to see what would happen if I could help other kids audition for Loxa. And I realized I really, really loved it. And kids would come to my house and we would pick two contrasting monologues, one of them Shakespeare and I loved it. I love doing it. And so I've been doing it ever since. So it's like been, I would say, 11 or 12 years. Kids come to my house, 13-year-olds. We pick a Shakespeare monologue and a contrasting contemporary one. I've also helped adults. I helped my husband Mm -hmm. with auditions. I have a real knack for learning lines very quickly. Uh, I think it's from the soap opera days. And I've also worked as a dialogue coach. Patty Heaton on uh, the set of The Middle and Carol's second act – I could help people learn lines really quickly. So I started doing that. Is that that what a
0: dialogue coach does? Is it just like helping actors run lines and memorize them?
1: Memorizing the lines, yeah. Making sure the actors know their lines. That's a dialogue coach. A lot of people say, there's no dialect in the middle. I'm like, dialect. That's (laughs) different from dialogue. Just running lines.
0: She's Midwestern, right? So that's the uh, the Midwestern dialect. Exactly.
1: So I just sit in the trailer and and help run lines for the actors. And I, I really love doing that. So I was doing that. And then at Loxa, we had an opening for the Shakespeare teacher and the head of the department asked me in November if I would do it. And I thought, oh, why not? You know, this th- th- it was the only lane that I could have done was being mm-hmm. the Shakespeare teacher. And I decided to try it. And so it's been six years of me doing that, but I do still do the audition coaching on the side. Mm-hmm. I did work with a lot of kids auditioning for college and I love it. I love the alchemy of putting two contrasting monologues together so that when you finish your one first monologue and you switch to the second one, the auditor should go, Oh my God, this kid could do anything. She's right. She's really, really fun. Well,
0: and I know you mentioned casting director, but it, but I mean, look, those are also the jobs of kind of like a director and producer. It sounds like you, you enjoy all of that of like, crafting something and creating something and finding those moments that, that for somebody else. Not only, you know, that you've obviously spent a lot of time and, you know, actors, if they don't, well, you know, a lot of actors discover that they need to be able to direct themselves and 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 all that kind of stuff because you may get nothing from the director except for stand right there. And right. Down, that's where you stand. And, and I know you had mentioned a, a piece of text from Macbeth. I, I wondered if, like, maybe we could take a quick look at that just so that people can you know, get a little bit of an idea of of what, you know, some of the things you look at or some of the things you focus on. And this is, you mentioned the, is this a dagger, which I see before me speech. Is that what you wanted to look at?
1: Well, so... What what I start off with with my kids, yeah, sure. I think the hardest thing about teaching Shakespeare is where do you begin? Where do you start? Because yeah, you yeah. so you don't want to turn them off explaining iambic pentameter and spondees and trochees. and because tenth grade brains are you know that could be a real turn off, especially right, if they're right. predisposed to thinking this is going to be befuddling and boring, and I'm not going right. to get this. So what I start off with is I give them examples of prose speech. What the one I like to use is the blonde from two gentlemen of, uh, of Verona where he's talking about the dog farting under the table. The kids all get a kick out of that. Right, and then right. I show them an example of, uh, verse speech. And I usually use, Oh, Spider Hell, I see you all are bent to set against me for your merriment. Not only is it perfect. I pentameter, but it's rhyming couplets as well. A uh, Midsummer
0: Night's Dream, right? From a right, Midsummer yeah. Night's Dream.
1: So then to explore irregular Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. I use is this a dagger which I see before me, which has irregular lines, lines that are some are longer than others. And in, so in terms of
0: just to give people context, in terms of the meter, in terms of the like yeah, you know yeah. how many it's, you know, yeah, that I si- am stuff. Yeah.
1: How many syllables per line? So is right. this a dagger which I see before me as eleven syllables? The right. handle toward my hand come let me clutch thee. Why are the first right. two lines have 11 syllables? What does it mean to you? They're tools, not rules. What could right. be going on for Macbeth? This is right before he's um, on his way to kill the king, kill Duncan. Mm-hmm. This right. third line. I have thee not, and yet I see thee still. Interesting. The third line is not only 10 syllables, but every word is a single syllable. Mm-hmm. Every word is a monosyllable in that line. In that line. Why do you think that's, sh- that's so? Is that useful information? If not, move on. So art thou not fatal vision sensible? Another 10 syllable line. And you go down the speech, counting how many syllables are in the, are in each line. And then he says, or art thou but a dagger of the mind of false creation proceeding from the heat oppressive brain? I see thee yet in form as palpable as this, which now I draw. Six syllables.
0: Six, six syllables, right.
1: Right? So why do you think, I would ask the actor, is that line only six syllables? And to which the student might say, well, what is he talking about? He's drawing a dagger from his belt. Mm-hmm. So maybe the four syllables are where you do the stage direction.
0: Right. And, and potentially also comparing the dagger in his hand to the one he see, like holding it up and like going, what, you know, you know, that there's some kind of business and, and that's what the actor and, and or director can create. But right. I I see what you're talking about. So there's,
1: so there's an embedded stage direction there as this, which now I draw, you could draw it on those six syllables. And then like you say, hold it up, or you can choose to draw it on those four syllables. But, like I said, tools, not rules, look at it. Mm-hmm. And if it's useful to you. And so what I would do with the students, this is something that I learned when in I did a program at the Globe program for teachers a few years ago, is you would have the kids sitting in a circle in chairs and give each student a line. So each student would have a line and they would count how many syllables are in their line. If you have ten syllables per line, a regular iambic pentameter line, you sit in the chair. If you have more than ten syllables stand in the chair. If you have fewer sit on the floor in front of the chair and when right. we do the whole speech, we go around the room and it's a cardiometer mm. of the of the character's heart rate of the what's right. going on with the character. There's a few widely held beliefs that if a line is a regular if a speech is regular iambic pentameter. And made up of lines or thoughts that are 10 syllables per line, this is somebody working through something, piecing something together. If you have more than 10 syllables per line, the thought is so big, it doesn't fit into 10 syllables. It may spill over. And so we get an idea of what's going on with Macbeth emotionally and Mm -hmm. in his heart. The energy that he's carrying inside of him when we map a speech this way. Is he using a lot of single-syllable words like uh, moves like a ghost, thou sure and firm set earth here, not my steps, which way they walk. He is not reporting thoughts and feelings that he's had before. He's he's figuring out his thoughts and feelings at the same time as they're coming out of his mouth. He's working through something. Mm. So Very useful. Then I would look at in the speech, the next thing I would do is talking about about the syllables is there's 32 lines in that speech. How many thoughts? I worked it out ahead of time. There's 12 different thoughts. There's 12 thoughts in that speech. How many of them are questions? How many of them are declarative statements that end with a period? How many of them are exclamations? How many are they midline thoughts that break in the middle of the Mm -hmm. line or start in the middle of the line? He interrupts himself. He's on a train of thought and then he stops that thought in the middle of the line. What does that tell you about what's going on? How many words are multisyllable versus how many are monosyllable? Why do you think that is? So another teacher that I've worked with has a great exercise where the first word is a thought igniter. So first word, thought igniter, last word story and Mm. one of the things that i impress upon my students is powering up at the end when we speak nowadays we power up in the middle of what we're saying and then we run out of steam we run out of breath and you know what i'm going to say anyway we run out of speed we have to do the opposite with shakespeare we want to build to the end come let me clutch thee i have thee not and yet i see thee still we want to build an energy tone and volume towards the end of the thought making that the most important Mm. part. So the first word is a thought igniter, and the last word is story. So we do lots of exercises with igniter, story, ignite, story, is, me, the the I, still, art, sensible. So the words are everything. The words are your tools, they're your weapons, they're your magic tricks. And just trying to get them out of their heads, get them out of self-judging, self-analyzing, that's my job, and getting them into their bodies and up off the page, on their feet, and using all their cells to tell the story.
0: Yeah, I mean, do you feel like there are things that you learned at, at Hofstra or, or Lambda or, or with David Kaplan that that you're still using today, you know, and in, in, in your teaching that that you're sharing that that, oh. that still apply.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think what I said earlier, which is act the verb, not the adverb. So Mm -hmm. many times people, the first question actors ask, young actors, especially, how do I do this? How do I play that? That's the wrong first question. The right first question is, what are you doing? What is Macbeth doing? Is he talking himself into this terrible deed that he's about to do? Right. Is he being, is he seeing the dagger as a warning? Now, my personal Feeling If I was playing Macbeth is I would use this speech as I think it's Macbeth's unsex me here. I think he's seen the witches. They told him he's going to be king. Oh, my God. And Duncan is staying here. This is too coincidental. This must be the world telling me you're supposed to do this. And the dagger speech, I think, is his incantation to the dark powers that mm-hmm. the, the dagger is marshalling me the way that I was going. He is telling me to go, telling me to do this. I also feel personally that he has enough moments of self-doubt that mm-hmm. this one could be the one where it's like, I know I'm doing the right thing. I think everything's telling me and pointing me in that direction. He has, if it were done, when it's done, he already has lots of rumination and meditation earlier in other parts where should I do this and the scenes with Lady M of self doubt. That I think it's right. cool if this is a moment where it's like thou marshals me the way that I was going. Yeah, you're telling me yes now or would half the world he- talks about Hecate's offerings? I think, I think that's what this is is his incantation.
0: Wow. It's you know what I love about a lot of this text is that there is no end to the amount of interpretation that we can bring to these things. Isn't that, that, that fun?
1: It's so yeah. fun.
0: I mean, you're you're only limited by your own imagination, and every actor you know will see something or pull something or you know glom onto something differently and go, well, what if it's like this? I mean, yeah, I mean, I remember I when I played Richard the Third, I was I was reading all these papers about you know, the, the psychology and the mirror effect and all these things about like, you know, cause I was just very interested in that portal into the character of like, what, what happened to him as a young child that would lead to this kind of behavior and all this kind of stuff. And then really looking at, you know, watching all these YouTube videos of, of like the different gates and, and things like the physical things that people can actually have and what they look like and how they manifest and all this kind of stuff, you know, which is, and, and again, like that was my particular interest in, in the topic and looking at the character journey. But, you know, anyone, you, you know, anyone who's played the part or, or any of, you know, any of these other parts, it, it's all going to be, well, what's, well, what do you see that's interesting to you? And what's, what's going to, what's going to ignite you, you know, to, to borrow that word in this stuff.
1: Having said that, I think that if you were playing Macbeth, if I was directing Macbeth, the Mm -hmm. play, I would do this speech differently than if I was directing somebody doing an audition monologue.
0: Mm, Okay. If he
1: was doing an audition monologue, the actor, I think, should show a journey. It should start. and, and It should start in one place and end up in another place. So I would in the audition start off with fear and doubt and self rumination and talking himself into by the end, he's fully resolved to do this because you need to show all the variety. You wouldn't do this audition speech the same way you would play the play, especially Mm -hmm. if you like that idea that, Oh my gosh, the, this is the, the, I bet the witches sent this dagger to show me that what I'm doing is the exact right. right thing to do and to be fully resolved through the whole thing. I think that, if you did it that way, it would contrast well with if it were done when it is done. Then, her, well, it were done quickly. And that speech—he's by the time that, that speech finishes, he's talked himself out of doing it. Right. So it would be different the way you would play it if for an audition than you would if you were playing the character in, in the part. My very feeling, cool. yeah, Isn't very
0: cool, very cool. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for all your time today. It's been—it's been really a, a treat to get to know you more and and learn more about you know your your journey, your career. I had one other uh, question I was I was I trying to think, because we've covered so many different things. You know, you talked about doing commercials when you're pregnant, you, you know, n- not getting certain roles or, or, you know, things that you, you know, you were kind of hoping you would get and really working on. I was just curious, can you think of, and, and I mean, certainly the Tony and Tina's wedding, like there sounds like there was a lot of stuff you did for that that was, you know, beyond the scope of what actors were doing for most shows, but... Is there anything that stands out as like one of the craziest things you ever did for your career or to get a job or, or something like that where you're just like, man, looking back, I can't believe I, you know, I mean, yeah, whether it was to get an audition or to get seen for something or uh, anything like that. Is oh there anything, my gosh, I
1: I can't think of anything, you know, because usually it's just been auditions, I think self-taping. This during the pandemic has been really interesting. And I think it's here with us to stay. There's sure, good and yeah. good and bad things about that. I know that I auditioned for the Orville and my son, who's a filmmaker, we yep. set up a whole set in the backyard. It didn't, you know, didn't go my way, but I'm racking tr- my brain. I mean, the first thing that pops in my head is Star Trek conventions. They are, uh, I love them. <laughs> I love them. My first. My first one was with George Takai in St. Louis, Missouri, and I was scared to death. I am great with a script. I am nervous just being myself and a really? situation like this where you're just talking. And I felt like the Star Trek fans who are so... Fanatical, for lack of a better word. Of course, yeah. I didn't ever watch Star Trek before the show. It was just a job. I haven't watched it since. People come up to me and go, What about you? What do you think about your character, Shelby, in the books, the novels? And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. It's a job I did when I was 28. But I gotta say, It's very, very moving to go to the conventions and have people care so much. I find it very moving. I was so nervous before my first one that I thought that they were going to hate the fact that I wasn't a sci-fi person, that I wasn't into sci-fi. I literally had three bloody berries before I went out on stage (laughs) for my first one. I was just so, so scared and so nervous.
0: Do you consider Um, yourself? Do you consider yourself an introvert or, or are you an extrovert?
1: I'm an extrovert. I just, I just thought. Because, you know, I, it was, I was afraid of the questions like, what was your phaser frequency set on when you went onto the sure. Borg ship? Like those, you get to ask questions like that. And I'm like, right, it right. was a TV remote painted, you know, but people back, then, I think people now I think I hope. Mm-hmm. Yet that we were actors in costume, and right. you know they like. But back then, in like the '90s, early '90s, people would come up to me and say, "You know, when that person was asking you about the Borgs, they were talking about you know the guys in costumes who couldn't pee all day. They were talking about Borgs, and I'm like, right. I just don't know how to deal with that. <laughs> but I think people now, you have all these." Behind the scenes specials. And I think people have more of a grasp with social media that we are actors memorizing lines. I would talk about memorizing lines. Oh my God. I have lines from that show. I will never forget. And I actually use these lessons with my kids, like separate the saucer section, assign a skeleton crew to create a diversion. <laughs> I, that line, I will carry with me all my days of my life. Cause thank goodness
0: a- for your, uh, your Lambda training to, you know, exactly. get all the S's out. I, I know you said you didn't, didn't watch, but hopefully at some point you, you knew that Den of Geek, I, I learned this, had ranked your character as one of like the top Guest spots on that show. So, so there you go. You are beloved by the community. So, fabulous. You know, you know, Fantastic. You, you can go into the ne- next convention uh, riding high on that. But, uh, but, yeah, no, thanks. Thanks so much for chatting today. I really, really appreciate it. It was, it was such a pleasure.
1: My pleasure. My pleasure, Nathan. Anytime.
0: Hey there. This is Nathan one more time. Thanks so much for checking out the episode today. Please remember to subscribe so you don't miss anything ahead. If you enjoy what you've heard, please let others know. Write a review, post on social media, send an email, tell your entire acting class, or just a friend. I sincerely appreciate it. You can tag us at W.A.J. Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. We're also on Facebook and YouTube. I'd love to hear what you think of the show. Be sure to check out workingactorsjourney.com for our show notes with additional info and links mentioned in this episode, as well as all the episodes. We've got 25-plus interviews and 12-plus workshop presentations. Sign up for the email list so you're the first to hear about upcoming projects, workshops, and much, much more. Thanks again to today's guest and to everyone that makes these episodes possible. And a special thanks to you for listening. I'm Nathan Agan and enjoy the journey.